Amen. Well, we'll be in the book of Colossians today. Colossians chapter 3. We're turning a corner from chapter 3 into, Turner, into chapter 4 today. Uh, if you haven't been with us, Colossians is a book written in the first century by the Apostle Paul. He was personally called by Jesus to take the message of Jesus to non-Jews, Gentiles. Uh, Jesus, who was a Jew, was Savior not only of that one nation, but of all the peoples of the world. And Paul's letter to the Colossians is a letter to a church that he's concerned about. He wants them to know that Jesus is their master. He is the one true Lord of all the universe, and he is worthy of their honor. And he doesn't want them to be drawn aside by any sort of false teachings. So that was kind of chapters 1 and 2. He's, he's lifting up Jesus. He's making much of Jesus so that they know, don't let anybody tell you that Jesus is second to God. He is the fullness of God. And don't let anybody tell you that there are these other beings that are worthy of your worship or, or let people put these other rules on you. So he's made much of Jesus, and now he's turning to tell them why this matters. Following Jesus affects every relationship in our lives. It affects every part of our lives. And so what we see here in the, the passages that we've been going through recently is it affects the way that we speak to each other, uh, Following Jesus affects the way that husbands treat wives and wives treat husbands, the way that parents and children interact. And today, we're going to be looking at a passage on bondservants and masters, or slaves and masters, as your translation may have it. When the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, after wandering for 40 years in the desert, they were ready to fight. They were ready to conquer the land of Canaan, the promised land. And as they came into the land, the book of Joshua tells us about this story. Joshua sees a man. It just, Joshua chapter 5 tells us he looked up and he saw a man standing with his sword out, with a drawn sword. Now that's a position of attack. And Joshua has to determine, is this man a threat? So he goes up to, to this man and says, listen, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the answer that this man gives is so interesting. He says, no, no, I am the commander of the Lord. And what we realize in this interaction is it's not so simple. This man who represents God in some unique way will not be boxed in. He does not fit into some preconceived human notions. He's not merely for or against the Israelites, for them or for their enemies. He won't be tied down by some oversimplified association with one army or another. And in today's passage, the Apostle Paul addresses first century Christians who are slaves and masters, that is, slave owners. He has instructions for how they should live as followers of Christ. And this is troubling to us sometimes when we come to a passage like this and we read about Paul telling slaves and masters how they should interact in their own callings, sometimes we are troubled. We come to a passage sort of like the Israelites came. We're ready for a fight. And we want to say, I want this passage to fit into my notions. And so we, we come to a passage like this and we ask the question, are you for slavery or are you against slavery? And the answer is, no. It's not so simple. No, I will not be boxed in by your preconceived notions. No, I'm not progressive 
or conservative. There's no simple way to align this with our own human narratives. In fact, God stands above, if you will. He's the one who speaks to us, not the other way around. And it's important when we come to a text like this that we don't come demanding answers. We come ready to listen. We come to a text like this with humility, saying, what can this text teach me? What can God's word say to me here? Our concerns are legitimate, particularly as it deals with a horrible institution like slavery. However, we need to come with our ears open. We will discuss some of the painful issues related to slavery today. We're not going to avoid them. But I want to encourage us at the beginning. This is God's word. It is worthy of our obedience. And so I'm asking us to come with an attitude of willing listening to God's word today. We need new categories God's word will not fit into our own modern categories or ancient categories. It explodes them entirely, resetting all the boundaries. We should thank God that slavery has been abolished in our country. Absolutely. But this may leave us wondering then, when we come to a passage on slaves and masters, slave owners, what do we do with this? Does this have anything to say to us? It does, and I think as we go through here, I'll try to explain how, in fact, this is particularly relevant and helpful to us in terms of employment, employees and employers, managers, bosses, at the levels that we tend to think this passage is actually very helpful, and it will speak to every person who serves in any role. So here's the plan of this message. I want you to listen as I read this passage. Listen with this willingness, saying, what does this passage have to say to me as a person who serves in one place or another, either in an office, at a workplace, or at home, or somewhere else? That's where we're going to start. We're going to read it, listen carefully. Then I'm going to give a brief explanation of what slavery looked like in the Roman Empire. It's important that we understand the history of it here so that we get this passage right. And then we're going to talk about how this passage applies to us. What does it mean to us? And how do, we, how do we apply this to our own lives today? So let me read from Colossians chapter 3. It's a very brief passage. I'll have the text up here if you don't have your, uh, a copy of the Bible with you. Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So that's our passage. I hope it resonates with you already, but before we get into it ourselves and begin to study it, I do want to take a moment and talk about slavery in the Roman Empire. It's important that we understand this historical context. In fact, this passage in particular is one of those that shows us how important it is to study the, the culture and the history behind the Bible, 
what was going on at the time that these passages were written. When uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, probably in the early 60s AD, we're right in the middle of the Roman Empire. Uh, the emperors have come to power. You can think of Julius Caesar and those who followed him. And so we're, we're in the heart of empire. So when we talk about Roman slavery, it's because this is the Roman Empire. That's what we're talking about. And here's why we're talking about this. Slavery in first century Rome was very different from American slavery. Slavery in first century Rome was very different from that which was practiced on our own soil in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. If you know anything about the history of slavery in America, you know that there were Christians on the front lines of abolishing it. Praise God. And some of those names that stick in our mind were prominent believers in Christ. But you also know that there were slave owners in America and in other places that used the Bible to justify their own practices. They took passages, even passages, and particularly passages like this one, to defend their own cause and say, see, the Apostle Paul doesn't bat an eye. He, he, he is for the status quo. And they use that to justify their own slave holding. But that is a misinterpretation of this text because Roman slavery is very different than the American slavery. Let me give you three clear distinctions between the two. Roman slavery, as it was practiced in Paul's day, was not race-based. In fact, in all of the Roman Empire, it was never race-based as American slavery was. You were as likely to find an Italian who was a slave as a German, someone from one of the African tribes as someone from one of the Celtic tribes. This was not a race-based practice. It's extremely significant. The, the Romans were not attempting to subjugate one people group targeting people based on their skin color or their ethnicity very different americans kidnapped people from their own continent romans uh, did not do it in that focused manner uh, aiming it at only one race this is not a defense of roman slavery by the way <laughs> keep that in mind I'm only telling you that there's a significant difference between Roman and American slavery. Roman slavery was not race-based. Roman slavery, secondly, was not segregated by class like American slavery was. Roman slavery, uh, what I mean segregated by class is slaves were not kept at the bottom of society. They were not kept down. In fact, you had slaves who were all sorts of professionals, doctors, teachers, engineers, every, every sort of profession was open to slaves because they could be educated. Again, totally different than American slavery. American slave owners kept their slaves from education. Not so with Roman slaves. In fact, the life of a Roman slave was in many ways better than the day laborers at that time. Day laborers lived based on market fluctuations. The economy's up, things are good, the economy's down, no Social Security, no care for you, no promise of bread or shelter. But a Roman slave was insured of that. His master had a responsibility to care for him. And, in fact, if there's one thing that I think sums up this fact, that Roman slavery was not segregated by class uh, more than any other, it's the fact that the, the imperial uh, administration, that is, those who uh, served the, the Roman emperors, those who served on his cabinet, were almost entirely chosen from slaves. The Roman emperors 
used slaves to fill their own cabinets. This is totally different than American slavery, totally different than, than it was practiced in the modern West. The emperor delegated his authority over governors, magistrates, senators to his own personal slaves. And that made those who were under them chafe because there was still, uh, there was still bigotry. There was still bias against slaves. But it was not this sort of segregation that we're used to in American slavery. One of the clearest examples of how Roman slavery was not segregated by class. And third, Roman slaves were, were considered to be fellow humans. This is very significant as well. There was no concept of slaves as being less than human. They had a soul. Romans knew that, and they never denied that. Uh, Nero, for all of his evil, had, uh, he was advised by this guy, Seneca. Uh, and Seneca is one of the greatest defenders of slaves' rights in the ancient Roman Empire. Uh, slaves were considered to be fellow humans, whereas in American slavery, the life of a slave could be taken at the will of the master. In Roman slavery, if someone killed their slave, it was considered homicide, and they would be brought to trial for it. Just two totally different institutions. That said, there was still evil. People were still considered to be the property of someone else. And I think it's really important for us because we just can't think of... We have a hard time distinguishing in our minds the concept of owning someone like property and all the evil that went along with American slavery. But in the ancient Roman world, those two things were very separate. They considered people to be their own property if they were a slave, and yet they did not have any of these other assumptions. It was not race-based. It was not segregated in a way to keep them down, and it was not as if their lives were subhuman or inhuman. So, in many ways, Roman slavery was, I think, like being an employee. It's not a perfect match. You, if you want to do more digging on this, by all means, read. There's a lot of good stuff out there. But the analogy between uh, Roman slavery and what we consider modern employment is closer than the, the analogy between Roman slavery and American slavery. So, as we go through here, think about the fact that even today, Wealthy families employ individuals to work in their own household doing highly specialized tasks. That's very similar to uh, Roman slavery in some ways in the mid-first century. So we have to be careful not to read our later assumptions back into this very early text. Remember the millennia and a half that separate American slavery and Roman slavery. And as we talk about Paul's teaching to these Colossians, uh, I'm going to use the word bondservant. My translation has bondservant here in verses 22 and uh, 26. Most of your translations may have that, or some of them may have the word slave there. Slave is an appropriate word. I'm going to distinguish in my vocabulary so that we keep in mind that this is not American slavery. Indeed, the word used is slave. The word is slave. But it's not our modern concept. So as we go through here, I'm going to stick with this terminology bond servant, because I want us to keep in mind the fact that it, it was significant employment and it was not this same sort of brutal uh, institute that American slavery was. Paul's teaching here neither implies approval of slavery, nor does he call for immediate overthrow. His purpose was different. <laughs> 
This is where if you come to the text saying, are you for or against slavery, Paul? You will be disappointed. Paul's purpose was to tell bondservants and masters how to live in the situation in which they found themselves. His purpose was to provide instruction for Christians. So as we begin this instruction, let's notice how uh, Paul's commands fall in this context. I'm going to turn away from uh, this distinction between American and Roman slavery now. Enough time on that. But let's notice where Paul puts this instruction in the passage here in Colossians. He's been talking to families, husbands and wives, parents and children. And here he addresses these bond servants and masters because they lived in the family household. They were considered to be part of the, the family in many ways. They were part of everyday life. And because Paul says there's an obligation for you, you are both morally responsible those of you who are bondservants and those of you who are masters, morally responsible for your actions because this is going to be kind of the controlling theme of this whole text. Because you both serve the master, Jesus. You both serve the Lord Jesus. The word for master in this passage, as you go through it, it's a little difficult uh, when we bring this over from Greek into English. The word master is the exact same word for Lord. That's how they addressed people in the ancient world. A bondservant had a kurios, his lord or master. And so th there's a play on words here that's sort of lost, except in my translation in chapter 4, verse 1. And that is that Jesus is the master. Jesus is the master of both those who are bond servants, those who are considered to be property in this life, and those who are considered to be free. He says, you are, you are not free. You are owned by the master, Jesus. So... We begin with this uh, instruction to bond servants here. Paul says, obey in everything. Obey in everything. Now, this doesn't mean everything without exception or everything without moral bounds. Uh, we saw previously that he wants these, uh, in, in, in these different situations, he wants people to submit as unto the Lord, as unto the Lord. So you're still a Christian. You're still living within this Christian realm, and all that Jesus says is your primary prerogative. So when he says obey in everything, he means as a Christian. Whatever God defines as sin is sin and should not be done. The next phrase really helps us here uh, to understand what Paul means in everything. The rest of verse 22 reads, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, don't just work when your master is watching. That's what that phrase eye service means. When, when your boss's eye is on you. Don't just be that person who, as soon as he turns a corner, uh, turns off work and immediately begins doing your own thing. You can imagine a bond servant who functioned as an accountant, taking a break as soon as the boss is out of the, is out of the room, closes the books, sets him aside. That's not right, Paul says. And in our own day, uh, we are tempted to read the news scroll through Instagram or click onto YouTube just briefly during our work hours. There's something similar here. Don't just serve when, you're, when your master's eye is on you, Paul says to these here. Don't just serve in order to please them. That's what he says. Not just to be a people pleaser. So what's meant by people pleasing is no doubt this sort of uh, kind of gaining 
uh, some sort of honor with your master. Oh, that guy's always working hard. That, that lady's always working hard. Just because you only work in front of them, your job is not ultimately to please that person. Your job is not, is not for that human master's pleasing, Paul says. You have a higher master. You are to work diligently. If we had to summarize this, I think we, we could say in several things here. First, we could say work diligently. There's no excuse for slacking off or being lazy. But secondly, he also is telling them, I don't just want you to flatter your bosses. Your job isn't just there uh, th- for, for them to be pleased, for them to, be, to feel okay and satisfied with your work. You have a higher master who you should be seeking to satisfy. So he wants them as well to work joyfully. And he uses this phrase, with sincerity of heart. We could say, do it with your whole soul. Do it with your whole heart. Jesus used a similar phrase, saying, we must uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's that, it's that idea. All your being should go into this employment that you have. So do it joyfully. It shouldn't be treated as burdensome, just an obligation to fulfill. Your work Whatever it is, he tells these bond servants, should be done with your whole heart because you know that you're serving the Lord Jesus. And then he gives them both a positive motivation for, for these two ways of working, working diligently and working joyfully, and also a warning. This positive motivation kind of fits in as a, another um, instruction here for bond servants. He, he says in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That last phrase there is really, I think, the controlling phrase in this passage. You are serving the Lord Christ. It's exactly what he tells masters in just a few verses. You also have a master in heaven. You are serving Christ. Now, this verse 24 is significant, though, because slaves could not legally inherit anything according to Roman law. They could write a will, and their possessions could pass on to their own children, but it stayed within the family. It stayed within the household where they were owned until they were freed. And so Paul says, you may not have an earthly inheritance. Your earthly master may not free you. Many did, and some didn't. He said, your earthly master may not give you the inheritance that is your due for your labor to him. However, you have a heavenly master who will not fail to take account of your work. He will give you your inheritance, the reward as your inheritance. You are equal in that sense with any master or any free person This is what Paul means, no doubt, when he says, back up in chapter 3, verse 11, just a few verses above this, he says, here, meaning in the church, those who are in Christ, there is not, and then he gives these whole lists of different categories that the world was so fond of dividing people into. There's not Greek or Jew. There's not circumcised or uncircumcised. There's not barbarian or Scythian, these far-off tribes that the Romans were terrified of. There is not slave or free But Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. If you are a Christian, Christ dwells in you. And so there can be no distinction between this person is a bondservant. They won't inherit. They will inherit because their Lord Jesus has determined that they will inherit the reward from him. 
So Paul tells them not to think of their service merely in earthly terms. That's what he means. Don't, uh, he says, don't, don't do these things for your earthly masters. Your translation may have something slightly different. The phrase is masters according to the flesh. That is this temporal world that we live in, this passing world. Yeah, yeah, they have some, they have some uh, legal ownership of you according to Roman law, but that's passing away. Jesus is the one who owns both you and him. And so your work doesn't become less significant. It becomes more significant. You're serving this earthly master as a way of serving Jesus. Your employment matters because this is where God has you at this moment. Paul makes clear that the bondservant's ultimate allegiance was not to another person. And in that sense, he does undermine the ownership of one person by another. Slavery can only wither and die in this sort of environment. Jesus himself is the master of both slave and free, bondservant and master. In this sense, Paul is explicitly telling both parties that they should look past the earthly legal rules that they see around them and recognize these higher heavenly truths. Paul said several verses earlier, there is, as we read just a moment ago, here there is not slave or free. Christ is all and in all. But what did Paul's words mean for someone who really was a bondservant, who really did live under that institution? What did it mean that they were serving the Lord Jesus? It means something like this, that the bondservant, whatever his or her employment was, stacking boxes in the warehouse, mopping floors, being a tutor or nanny to the master's children, carrying out the financial work of the family household, being a doctor, the chief engineer for this corporation or family. This work was not just done for the master's house. This work was done for the heavenly master. It was done for Jesus. And he was the one who would be pleased with good work or dishonored by poor work. This meant that even the most humiliating tasks have value to Jesus. Even the most insignificant work, according to the world, has value. We still do this. There's some sort of modern conceit that we have where we look back on slavery and think we're so much better, but we still categorize each other. You still know whether the person next to you is an engineer one or an engineer four. We still have distinctions among ourselves. So we have to be careful not to look back on these previous people and think we're so much better than them. We too have biases. We too categorize each other. And Paul's calling all of us to get free of that. Here, brothers and sisters, Christ is all and in all. Do not think according to worldly categories. And don't think according to worldly categories for your employment either. If the sort of labor that you are able to do is called unskilled labor by the world, do not think that it's less valuable to Jesus. When Paul says here, whatever you do, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily, he means every part of work, every potential category. That phrase, whatever, it reminds me of a fisherman with a, 
a net so large he can throw it over the whole ocean and says, and he says, all these belong to the master. So also Paul can take this phrase and throw it over every type of employment and say, all these belong to the Lord. Do not let others look down on you for the type of work that you do. If you're doing it in faith to Jesus, it matters to him. You should work from the heart. You should work with sincerity and diligence, with joy, knowing that you are honoring Jesus in what you do. No work is less significant in the mind of Christ. And therefore, all work can be done in his service. Paul looks at every form of employment and says, all this, all this belongs to the master, whether paid or unpaid. And it's significant to point out here, many slaves were not paid. Some masters were very generous and did pay them. Again, there's just, when you look into this, there's just a significant diversity in terms of how bond servants were treated in Rome at this time. But many of them were not paid. And I think this is helpful for us to understand because many of you will not serve in places where you're financially compensated for your work. You serve in the family home. Maybe you're, you, you, you don't have uh, employment outside the home or it, for, for children who are serving in their parents' household. Your work matters. It doesn't matter that it's not paid. That's still part of the employment, the calling that God has on your life. I love uh, Martin Luther on this point. Martin Luther lived at a time when the Roman Catholic Church had taught that truly significant work was that which was done in service to God through the church. So you want to do something important in the world? You become a priest. You want to do something really important? You become a monk. And you give your entire life, you take a vow of poverty, you go away and you just pray all day long. And Luther, as he rediscovered the gospel and began reading the Bible for himself, realized that's a total lie. <laughs> that's a total lie. This division between sacred work on the one side as being more important and secular work on the other as less significant is, is not found anywhere in Scripture. Not found anywhere in scripture. Luther pointed this out. I love this example that he used. That, that anyone who does uh, honest work is doing the work that God's called them to. He said, you know, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. But nobody expects a, a loaf of bread to fall down from heaven. You don't just wait there. You go to the baker, or in our case, to Smith's. And you buy yourself a loaf of bread. And so God fulfills his purposes for you. He fulfills and answers your prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We go and purchase it, and we consider our prayers answered. There's a baker behind that. There is someone who ground that wheat into flour or chia seed or quinoa, if you're GF, whatever it is. There's a farmer behind that grain who, who grew that. John Deere created all these implements to help us uh, harvest our crops. There's public utilities people who make sure that the water is flowing and clean. There's a whole network of people in the world who are fulfilling our prayers. They are the ones who are working in answer to our prayers for God. To, excuse me, in our prayers to God for bread. And that's true in every aspect of life. No honest work is insignificant in God's sight. So when you think of the processes by which our world works, realize you fit in there. God has a purpose for you wherever you are. Your calling is significant. So God answers our prayers by employing us. 
in all these places where he has us, whether paid or unpaid. Don't let that distinction become significant in your mind. Whatever you do, brothers and sisters, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, because you are serving the Master Christ. Now we should look at this warning that Paul gives in verse 25. He says, The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. There's some debate about whether this warning is directed at bondservants or whether it's directed at masters. And as you see, we're about to turn the corner uh, in the next verse and talk about masters. And so this is sort of a transitional verse. I think it's reasonable to assume that it applies to both. Both bondservants and masters receive this warning. No wrongdoing will go unaccounted for. The one who sees all is taking note. So don't continue in those sinful ways. First, application to bondservants. Those who worked within this uh, family or an organization uh, obviously had a degree of access, similar to any modern employee. Uh, the more, uh, the, the more uh, in, into that organization they were, the more access they would have had. And so they were subject to the same temptations that we find in the modern workplace. Abuse of funds, embezzlement, theft, uh, abuse of coworkers, wasting time, uh, we could say uh, time card fraud. All these things are part of what Paul has in mind, no doubt, when he says, the master... The heavenly master is watching. Don't think any wrongdoing will go unrepaid. And he is impartial. All wrongdoing will be judged. Paul's warning here is, um, is interesting also for masters. Masters, do not think that your legal status as the owner of this person, which, again, it did give them rights, and in, in some cases they were brutal, it did give them legal rights, I should say. And in some cases, they abused those in order to harm their, their bond servants. Don't think, Paul says, that you will get away with a single injustice. Know this. All wrongdoing will be repaid. And when he says here uh, that there is no partiality, this just immediately takes us to the courtroom of God, to the judgment of God. What earthly court can you say this about? There's no impartiality. Every human court has its blindnesses, intentional or accidental, not, not in God's judgment. He has his eyes on, on all of us in every place where we are serving others. Do not think that any wrongdoing will be overlooked. Paul's warning is therefore meant to be very sobering to us. There is no partiality. All these wrongs, every sin committed, every crime that's unaccounted for, every little wrongdoing, even if it's not criminal, will be brought to account, no matter how insignificant it seems in this light. And there is a judge who will perfectly bring these, who will perfectly bring justice to each of these situations. This is not a threat, though. It's not meant as a heavy-handed threat. It's a reminder. It's a warning to Christians who have already been told, when you come to judgment, know this. If you are in Christ, you are his. He will not lose you. 
Don't think that in the course of your daily work, though, you can get away with any injustices, any wrongdoing, whether done to another person or done to the corporation. Your daily work is under God's watchful eye. Be warned. So when someone does wrong, they should keep in mind that they will be taken account of by God. Now, pause here. We can thank God for the good news about Jesus. We can thank him that those of us who have committed crimes or have sinned against others, which of course includes all of us, those of you who have failed in the course of your work or failed in your service to friends or family, there is a place to hide. There's a refuge. There is one who will advocate for you in the courtroom of heaven. Jesus himself. We've been singing all these songs about debt. We are debtors to Christ. That's so significant. Someone else has paid your debts. Someone else has taken those from you. Jesus has given his own life to free us from all the things that we couldn't be freed of in this life. You may, in fact, experience earthly consequences and judgment, but Jesus promises to hide you in himself, in God's judgment. So thank God for this good news, whether you have cheated on your homework, wasted company time, gotten angry at a sibling, spoken boastfully about the importance of your own work. All of these can be covered by the blood of Jesus. It's such a graphic symbol. If you're not a Christian or you're not familiar with church, uh, you don't come around church often, please don't be turned off by that. It's a symbol of love that Jesus stood up when we should have received judgment and took the judgment for himself in the terms of his own execution. And when he did that, he freed us from that judgment, that execution. And brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, don't grow numb to the significance of that. You were purchased with the blood of Christ. Do not undervalue it. Don't continue in wrongdoing. So the warning to the Colossians is real here, and it's meant to drive us back to Jesus, to remind us of how we have been promised forgiveness if we hide ourselves in him. To follow Jesus means to be his servant, though. To serve him now, to give all of our actions to him, all of your words, all of your deeds should be done for him, knowing that you follow him. Now, if it strikes you as odd or inconsistent that we're both promised mercy on the one hand and warned that our evil deeds will be brought into judgment, just search your New Testaments. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's all over the place. There is no inherent inconsistency here. We struggle with it sometimes because we tend to preach grace very strongly, as we should. But we don't want to miss the fact that there are warnings, even warnings for Christians. Your deeds will be brought up in the final judgment, even your deeds after you've become a Christian. This is no, like, you know, carte blanche to just go and do what you want after you become a Christian. One passage here. Consider 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Right after Paul reminds these church members, hey, there is a resurrection, and I want you to live in such a way that you please Jesus. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Brothers and sisters, your actions matter. Turn away from wrongdoing. Hide yourself in Christ and don't continue in sin any longer. 
Just as all work matters to God, so also all wrongdoing in the course of work or in the course of any service at home or elsewhere is meaningful. It matters to God, and there is no excuse for it. He will not turn a blind eye for it. Finally, let's turn to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul's uh, instructions to masters here. And this is just a side note. Uh, if you're looking at this and you're thinking, what a strange way to break up this passage. You did 3.22 through 4.1. Well, these chapters were put in much later, sometime in the medieval period, and they were put in by people who didn't always have Paul's uh, intention in mind. And I think this is one of those places where we just see, hey, that was wrong. <laughs> Should have put that chapter break elsewhere. Should have put it after this. Because Paul is addressing masters in the same way that he addresses bond servants. I don't know what the medieval... Uh, chapter bearer's intention was by putting masters aside if he uh, was intending to say masters are treated separately Paul's intention is the opposite he knows masters you also have a heavenly master do not think of yourself separately strange aside sorry Colossians 1 uh, Colossians 4 1 masters treat your slaves your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven here's the essence of this passage treat those you manage with fairness in the same way that you want to be treated by your master, Jesus. These terms, justly and fairly, are relatively simple. They mean exactly what we might mean by them. And again, they are not entirely unique to the Christian, uh, to Christian usage here. Many pagan authors argued that slaves should be treated fairly and justly. But Paul takes it a step further. He says... Because you also have a master in heaven. So what Seneca could argue for, Paul does in a totally different way. He's not just following human standards, saying these people have value because they're humans. He's saying, you who manage others, you must treat them in the same way you want to be treated because you also serve a heavenly master. You yourselves are bondservants to one above you. Realize that any authority you have is only only a temporary and a delegated authority. I probably don't need to go on too long with application here to employers, managers. There's application to parents as we manage our own children in the home. Treat those under your authority justly and fairly in the same way you want to be treated because you know your master's eye is on you and he's good. He's good. I think maybe what's missing, again, from when we come to this text with these prejudices against Paul because of American slavery, and we do this work, this historical work, what we've for, that, that's necessary to say it's not the same. It's something totally different. What we have to keep in mind is Jesus himself reset everything. He just intended to reset everything. He did not come to bless your political perspective. He didn't come to bless the Pharisees. He didn't come to bless the Romans and say, everything you guys do is just right on the mark. He didn't come to fit into our categories. He came to bust them open, to free us from thinking in terms of simplistic human allegiances. Your allegiance is so much higher, brothers and sisters. Here's what Jesus did. You remember, uh, just as he's preparing to be betrayed by Jesus, at the Last Supper, he washes the disciples' feet. He washes their feet. And you remember Peter's reaction. He's absolutely revolted. He's disgusted. That's a job 
for a slave. Why would you do that, Jesus? I won't let you wash my feet. That's too low. I will not allow you to serve me in that way. Jesus got inside of the institution. Jesus got inside of it. He just did something different than we were expecting because he's resetting our understandings of authority. He says, I am among you as one who serves, and yet he was their master. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And so he upsets all human assumptions about authority. He resets them so that our understanding of authority is not based on human institutions, whether Roman or American. Our understanding of authority is based on God's authority over us. Not first as a master, although Paul uses that because there's a a helpful wordplay. Not first as a master, as a father. Your father in heaven loves you. He cares for you. He listens to your prayers. That's why we pray, because he loves us, because he is our loving authority. And so, so just understand there's a total reset here. If you are in a position of authority over someone else, these have significant application for you, for us. Our authority is meant to be used in this way, remembering that we have a master in heaven who loves us and gave his life for us. Let me pray for us. We'll sing, and then, and then we'll close. Oh, Father, we need your help here. I long to do justice to your word. And we do come with preconceived notions. Guard us from them. Forgive us for them. Help us to listen and come with an attitude of humility to your word every day. And I pray that you would work on us. Don't allow us to stay the same, please, oh Lord. Don't allow us to push these passages aside and say, insignificant. We ourselves are under the authority of Christ. Oh Lord, help us, we pray. To serve whatever we do at work or at home in a manner worthy of Christ. We thank you for your word to us, Lord. And we thank you for the service that Christ offered to us, becoming a slave for our sake dying in our place, that we ourselves might be freed and purchased again and become servants to you, O Lord. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.